morning. Rodriguez. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Church of the Resurrection, and uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Happy New Year, the new uh, church calendar year, and in this season of Advent, we are tuning our hearts to the key of waiting, waiting for the feast of Christmas when we will celebrate Jesus' first coming through the womb of the Virgin Mary. Advent, however, is also a season when we acknowledge the suffering, the evil, the injustice in the world around us. And we remember that the day is coming when Jesus will return to judge evil and restore all things. And we look forward also in a spirit of penitence, knowing that except for the grace of God, we too perish. Now the prophet Micah, whom we've been studying for the past few weeks, writing about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, at a time when Israel was in grave danger because of foreign powers around them that threatened to conquer them. The prophet Micah pointed to these two comings, these two advents of Christ. And today we're in Micah chapter 5, verses 10 through uh, chapter 6, verse 8, page 662 in your pew Bibles, that uh, kind of uh, really, uh, great, great one in front of you. 662, you can turn there now if you have a Bible. And we're going to see today a grand picture painted of the coming of the Lord. And we're going to hear a generous, even gentle invitation to walk in the way of life. But first, let's ask our Lord for his help. Lord, make your, make your word our rule your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in 2018, was that now? Four years ago, uh, my wife Tessa and I moved from Ethiopia, where we were living and serving, to the UK, where Tessa is originally from. And we lived in the UK for the following three years for academic study. And the Lord provided a beautiful, wonderful house for us to rent for those three years. And it had an amazing backyard, or as the Brits like to say, a brilliant back garden. <laughs> and this garden had a former glory. It had a large apple tree, several rose bushes, buddleia, and a tree peony, and some blackberry bushes in there for good measure. It even had a small greenhouse. Whoever owned this garden 30 years ago knew exactly what they were doing. But when we moved in, it was overrun and infested by persistent weeds that choked the new growth of young plants. You could barely walk a few steps out the back door before you needed a machete going further. Old trellises were rotted out and about to collapse. The greenhouse was missing a few panels. The rose bushes had climbed up the fences. They were sickly. They produced few flowers and plenty of thorns. And there were weeds everywhere. The root system of the weeds and the stinging nettles, the vine weed, the ground elder ran everywhere. And these weeds, they grew really fast, and if you cut them down one day, the next day they grew up taller. They were incredibly difficult to get rid of. And the stinging nettles, these, these went up by as high as your waist. There was a lot of work to be done. We stepped into the back garden and realized that if someone wanted to grow anything back there, it required a complete overhaul. And Tessa and I wanted a space for our kids to play, a place to grow some vegetables, and some beauty to gaze upon over a cup of tea. 
So we began a slow, arduous process of clearing the garden. The landlords were dear friends of ours, and they were uh, living overseas at the time. And they were more than happy for us to take a crack at it, see if we could clear that old garden. Um, eventually, we were able to clear the garden just enough that we could plant our own little vegetable patch and sit outside the back on a summer day with some lemonade or whatever. And it was good, but it was nowhere, ne nowhere near the deep clean that needed to happen by professionals and by the landlords themselves, who could you know, pay people to literally move down some, uh, some, some old walls and uh, uh, replace some concrete slabs and do a, uh, get some tree people to go cut down a few limbs. It was, it was a huge piece of work. Now, similarly, when we see the Lord speaking in this passage, we see him speaking to Israel, warning them that he is about to clean house, to burn the garden down to the roots and to plant it afresh. And he will do this, remember, because of his unrelenting covenant love for Israel. Remember what Micah the prophet says to Israel at the end of his prophecy, the very end of chapter 7, verse 20. He's saying to the Lord that he will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as he sworn to their fathers from days of old. So because of God's great love, his unrelenting love for Israel, he was going to clean house. He's going to clean house, so first of all, listen up. Secondly, remember. And thirdly, walk with God. Okay, let's see how God's going to clean house in verses 10 through 15 of chapter 5. And in that day, verse 10, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands, and will root out your Asherah images from among you, and destroy your cities. Horses, chariots, strongholds, these speak of the powers that Israel was putting their confidence in. Sorceries, tellers of fortunes, these speak of the predictions that they relied upon to know what to do and how to prosper. The works of your hands, they speak of the production, the economic prosperity that they were looking for. I will destroy your Asherah images, these ancient fertility cults that, 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 that taught that if you had, that, that sexual pleasure was at, the, was at the basis of human flourishing. So power, prediction, production, and pleasure. These ancient gods vying for the hearts of Israel. And Israel putting her confidence in every one of them. And the Lord gives them a newsflash. He doesn't do open relationships. All of these gods he is opposing. He will clear the house because he wants exclusive covenant love from his people, Israel. And so he tells them in the next passage, chapter 6, verse 1, literally listen up. This recalls Deuteronomy chapter 6, the well-known Shema in Jewish tradition. Shema literally meaning again, hey, listen up. Attention, everybody. I got something important to say. Listen up, Israel. And then he continues, arise, 
Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. This is a covenant court, court case against Israel. The prophet Micah is the prosecutor. Israel is the accused. The mountains, the foundations of the earth that God himself created are the witnesses that testify against Israel. That she has been unfaithful to her covenant with the Lord. And the Lord is now calling her to repentance. He's clearing house. He's reminding his people to listen up. And now he gives them the call to remember. Look at verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He's reminding his people, Israel, of the great act of salvation in the Old Testament before Christ. The story of the Exodus, when God heard the cries of his people as they were languishing in the enslavement under the Egyptians. And he set them free, bringing them through the Red Sea, baptizing them into the water, recreating them as his people, giving them the law through the leadership of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam leading them to the promised land with that covenant in their hearts, sealed over their bodies, affirming to them that they belonged to him. And that as the family of Abraham, he had promised to bless them and through them bless the whole world. But they forgot it. In fact, it wasn't just in the time of Micah that they had forgotten all of these great and precious promises of the Lord. Look at what he uh, reminds them in verse 5. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You know what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? First of all, in Shittim, Numbers chapter 25, don't have to turn there, but this is when Israel turned away from the Lord and went after the Baals, the gods of Moab, committed all kinds of indecent acts, and followed those gods as if those gods, those puny gods, could satisfy all of their desires and provide for them and protect them from foreign invaders. And they broke the covenant. But God is relentless, unwavering in his love for Israel, and so he sent them Joshua, which happened, which is what, what was referred to uh, in the Gilgal incident here. Gilgal is several chapters, several books that, uh, ahead of uh, Numbers chapter 25. We have Deuteronomy, and then after Deuteronomy, we have Joshua chapters 1, 2, 3, and then Joshua chapter 5 is the renewal of the covenant by Joshua. Remember Joshua, the successor of Moses, after they got to the promised land, there was a new generation that had to be reconsecrated to the Lord. So at Gilgal, Joshua reaffirmed the covenant, reminded the people of Israel to whom they truly belonged. And you know what he did to reaffirm that covenant? He reinstituted circumcision, and then he celebrated the Passover. This was before they invaded and conquered Jericho, right before that key battle that they're about to fight. He reinstituted circumcision, reminding them of the covenant that God had made with their great, 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 great granddaddy Abraham. And then he celebrated the Passover, reminding them of the great act of salvation that God had just accomplished for the previous generation. 
this Joshua, this Jesus figure, was reinstituting a symbol of baptism and a symbol of Eucharist, circumcision, and Passover. And so the Lord is reminding Israel in this passage through the mouth of the prophet Micah to remember, remember the great act of salvation and remember that even in their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful and would not let his people go. So, in light of that grace of God, unmerited, undeserved by Israel, the Lord calls them to repentance once more, inviting them once more to walk in the way that he called them to in the first place. So here we are in verses 6 through 8. What does the Lord require? Verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, the uh, prophet Micah here is speaking in, in hyperboles, trying to, to show just how absurd it would be to think that the sacrificial system, apart from putting one's faith in the Lord, could wipe away their sins, as if they could continue in their persistent sin and just think if they did the right sacrifices, the Lord would look the other way. You see, the sacrificial system was never meant to be that formula for enabling and allowing persistent sin and injustice as if we could sin as much as we want as long as we do the right sacrifices. Now, this was true not only that, that kind of mentality that, oh, as long as I do the right things uh, at the right time, you know, I can, I, can, I can allow a few persistent sins, that's okay. That was a temptation for Israel, and it's a temptation for us. Today, we like to set up our own sacrificial systems that justify the things that we're good at. They would justify us in the things that we're good at and ignore the things that we know displease the Lord according to his word. And whether you consider yourself a conservative or a liberal or somewhere in between, there are ways that we justify those sins that scripture condemns. Think about this. Someone might say, I can ignore the injustice of the oppressed and the sojourner, the immigrant, as long as I live a personally immoral life. I do what's right, I read my Bible every day, give to the church, give to four missions. I'm good, I can ignore the structural sins of injustice that have even given me my own prosperity that I enjoy today. Or about someone who might say this, I can do whatever I want with my body as long as I care about social justice. If, if, if I'm working for racial repair, if I'm, if I'm loving the immigrant who comes to my city, uh, who's to say that I can't follow the desires and the inclinations of my own heart when it comes to what sexuality should look like for me as an individual? And so wherever one is on the social political spectrum, we have our ways of ignoring parts of God's word and saying, well, at least I'm doing good in this side of God's word. And so Micah today shows us the absurdity of depending on any of these sacrificial systems that we've set up for ourselves. You see, all the sacrifices you can make in this life, whether in your personal morality or in your commitment to public justice, would not make one difference in your relationship with God 
if you are not pursuing the Lord with all of your hearts and walking in His ways and saying, your ways are not my ways, and I need to hear your word that's clear and present to me by your Spirit calling me to repentance and showing me the way of life. That is why after every reading of the Scriptures, we say, the word of the Lord. And then in gratitude and humility, we say, thanks be to God. Because God speaks to us clearly. His word is clear. Look at verse 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good. There, there's no obfuscation here. There's, there's, there, there's no pleading, oh, God's word isn't clear enough for us to know what to do. It is clear. He has told you, oh, Adam, what is good. That's what it literally says. He has, he has, he has made clear to you, oh, Adam. In other words, the first man created, representing all, all of humanity to follow, in reality, Adam referring to uh, the first male and female together, bearing the image of God. He, God, has shown them what it means to please Him. It's abundantly clear to us from His Word, and we even have echoes of it throughout all of creation, showing us what God requires of us. Look what He says in the second half of verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is one of those that's worth putting on your fridge or on your dashboard or you get a tattoo if that's your kind of thing. <laughs> he has told you, oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice. What does that mean? He gives us a definition, actually, God does in His Word, way back in Deuteronomy. And actually, if you want to look at this in your own time, Deuteronomy 10, uh, chapter, verse 12 to verse 18, parallels really nicely with uh, Micah chapter 6 in this entire context. Micah is basically bringing us back to Mount Nebo, where Moses was giving the covenant again to God's people, reminding them what God required of them. And so in Deuteronomy 10 is where we actually find our definition of justice. Chapter 10, uh, you can turn there if you like, or you can just listen. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, the biblical definition of justice. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. You see, this God is the one who defines what is right and wrong and shows it clearly to us in his word. It is this God who is above all the powers of this world. And it is in his character that we see what it means to be in the image of God and how each person deserves the dignity and the love that they are created with in his image. And so giving to each his due, according to God's standard, without seeking personal gain through deceit, wickedness, stealing, or injustice. That is biblical justice. God's, as God's people, we are called to that lifestyle. And depending on our vocations, depending on, on the, the part of society that we are called to play, 
We might have different ways of living this out in different areas of responsibility to which we're called. But all of us collectively, as God's people, are called to walk in that way. And secondly, we're called to love kindness. Now, the Hebrew word here is hesed, and sometimes hesed is translated as loving kindness, mercy, grace. In this context, it most probably means that undeserved love from God that forgives us of our sins. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, not treating us as our sins deserve. Exodus 34, 7, Psalm 103, I think around verses 5 and 6. This overflowing, merciful, sin-forgiving love of God, we are called to embrace that, to love it, to not treat people as their sins deserve. Or as Paul would say in the New Testament, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Nowadays, there's a lot of talk um, in the public sphere about justice and equity, and it's good that these kinds of conversations are in the public domain. Um, but uh, oftentimes, when one can define what injustice looks like, and one particular group is shown to be those who are uh, receiving um, uh, the oppression from another particular group, oftentimes, at least in the, in the current climate, we, we, if we don't have the gospel, we, we miss the logic and the, 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 uh, the hope-filled message of what forgiveness looks like. After naming how one has been harmed, to do the radical, humanly impossible act of forgiveness and moving to work towards repair, even with the perpetrators of injustice. How else could we do this if we did not have the amazing, overflowing, outrageously loving example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave the ultimate sacrificial act of chesed, of kindness, when he came and paid the penalty for our sin and injustice, and rose again on the third day, and gave us his spirit that we too can walk in the righteousness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we too should be engaged in the public conversation of what the definition of justice is. And we can do so with a power more powerful than any of the philosophies available to humankind because we have the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that shows us justice and mercy at the same time. And in light of this gospel, finally, we are called to be humble as we walk with God. Remember what our sins deserve, and remember the mercy that we have been shown, and so walk humbly with God, forgiving our enemies, and asking forgiveness of those whom we have harmed. Walking with the Lord. Now, um, before I moved to England uh, with my British wife, I, I had no idea what it meant to go for a walk on a Saturday morning. Now you see the rolling hills, the hedgerows, the ancient farmlands, the stiles, they invite you to walk miles without having to use a main road. Now usually hedgerows and stiles are public property, so as long as you walk on the edges of the hedgerows, you can, you can walk through most farmland, enjoying the scenic view. You'll never have to use a grip box again, you get the real thing. 
Now, after a few hours of walking, you can break for lunch at a village pub, warming yourself by the fire. This is the quintessential Saturday morning British walk. Now, I remember the first time I went for this kind of walk with Tessa in England. Um, she, was, she knew what she was doing, I certainly didn't. She grew up in England, in the English countryside, going for these kinds of walks practically every Saturday. And there is a technique, believe it or not, to climbing a stile so that you don't end up knee-deep in sheep poop. And it's certainly worth getting yourself a good pair of Wellington boots to kind of go up to your knees, otherwise you'll have soggy socks for an entire miserable morning. It's also worth packing a thermos of hot tea with one of those screw-on teacups on the top, because that gentle rain will soak you to your bones after just a couple hours. Now, Tessa knew all of this instinctively, but I certainly didn't, so I walked in her ways. I followed her and had a beautiful time. She was the one who knew what she was doing. I had to trust her and just keep walking and walking and enjoying the experience of that journey. Now we need to follow the Lord's steps and walk in His ways where with Him we're not merely going for a pleasure walk. We're on a pilgrimage to the eternal city and there are pitfalls and deadly sinkholes to the right and to the left. And he has shown us how to walk the righteous path as we wait for that day when Jesus, the righteous judge and savior of all, will come to judge wickedness and to save those who have put their trust in him. Will we follow? Wrapping things up, let's ask ourselves a few questions. When you examine your hearts and think of your house your heart as a house or as a garden, is it in order? Or are there other gods creeping up in your garden of a heart that are vying for your attention and, and seeking for you to put your confidence in them? What are you putting your confidence in? Your skills, your money, your retirements? Where are you seeking fulfillment and pleasure defined by your own inclinations? Are you covering your ears to the voice of the Lord? Are you remembering the great act of salvation that God has given you? And just in a few moments, we'll have an opportunity to do just this at the table of the Lord as we celebrate the Eucharist, just like the people of Israel celebrated with Joshua, remembering the Passover. These are the gifts of God that He's given to us to help us to remember Him that we may walk in His ways. And brothers and sisters, I've come here to D.C., I've been here just about a year and a half, and I've joined with you for this time to walk in this way of the Lord, in this city, as we sojourn towards the new Jerusalem. And what better time of the year to remind ourselves of this journey than Advent, as we remember that Jesus has come and He is coming again. And empowered by His Spirit, may we walk in His ways, acting justly and loving that covenant mercy that He has shown us and through us that He wills to show the whole world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.